Kathy adores the minuet, the ballet russe, and Craig Suzette. But Patty likes to rock and roll, the hot dog makes her lose control. What a wild duet. Still they're cousins. Identical cousins all the way. The laugh alike, the laugh alike, and times they even talk alike. You can lose your mind when cousins are two of a kind. End of the Civil War was near when quite accidentally a hero seized, abruptly seized retreat to victory. His medal of honor pleased and thrilled his proud little family true. While pinning it on, some blood was spilled, and so it was planned he'd command F Troop. Where Indian fights and colorful sights, and nobody takes a licking. Where pale face and both turn chicken. When drilling and fighting, get them down, you know the morale can boo. As long as they all can relax in town, and then begin with a bang and a boom. F Troop. That was a good one. That's one thing you don't get anymore. Um, comedies about... Wacky comedies about America's genocidal past. That's for sure. Don't get those so much anymore. The last time anyone tried it was uh, the amazingly ill-conceived show that I believe they showed on the WB before it was the CW called The Secret Files of, or The Secret Diary of Desmond Pfeiffer, which starred Chai McBride and was about Abraham Lincoln's black butler. And like all the jokes were about like slavery. Uh, pretty wild. You know, I have, somebody's mentioning El, uh, Air America. I haven't watched that movie since I was a kid. And I don't know. I, I want to watch it again, honestly, just to see like how frank its depiction of CIA drug trafficking and the Golden Triangle uh, it is. Because it is wild they made a movie about that. But, you know, they also made a movie about Barry Seal. And if anybody has seen American Made with Tom Cruise, it's pretty well done. You know, he's very charismatic. And, uh, of course, the story's got lots of interesting stuff in it, but uh, it's fundamentally handicapped by this uh, restrictor plate in its analysis of, like, the U.S. government role. Like, it, it is very specific to point out that the DEA, the CIA knew what uh, the Contras were doing, at most. And not even everyone in the CIA, really just, like, potentially... Uh, the case officer, because they sort of depict this guy, uh, the CIA creep played by uh, Donald Gleason, and he does a great job of playing a CIA creep, uh, because they are just these like psychotic pencil pushers, and he does that very well. Uh, they kind of set him up as the fall guy, as sort of somebody who was out on his own stick. And even then, all he was doing was overlooking drug trafficking and allowing to SEAL to participate in it and not actually directing or profiting from it himself or for the agency. Um, and so it does make you feel like even, you know, years later and even when 
revealing this stuff in narratives like this is part and parcel of maintaining cultural capitalist hegemony? I mean, in a country like ours, you can't have a thing like Air America. You can't have a thing like CIA drug trafficking just happen and then people know about it and then not and then it not being metabolized by the broader culture. Because when this stuff gets out and everybody knows it, that means everybody includes the uh, artistic classes, the the uh, the dream weavers who are a key component of creating the like, cultural diffusion of capitalist ideology. Uh, and of course, they don't see themselves that way. Nobody, they, you can't because otherwise you couldn't participate in it. And at the end of the day, it beats digging ditches. And it's more, it's a flight. It is the natural flight towards uh, away from exploitation. Basically, certain people are able through luck, mostly luck, uh, and a little bit of skill, charisma, whatever, to be able to make it. Uh, telling stories instead of having to directly participate in exploitation uh, like of themselves, you know, doing shitty physical labor that's uh, 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 painful or even doing, you know, bureaucratic work that is not painful physically, but is mentally uh, destructive, like literally sapping your will to live because of the boredom it imposes one way or the other. Like, uh, those are all fates to be avoided if they can be, and people flee toward, away from ex, uh, alienation. And the ones who find themselves uh, in entertainment, uh, part of the reason they're there is because of their revulsion at what uh, what the system is. And like the ones who are maybe working class are coming there, like, oh, I avoided, I dodged a bullet there. Uh, but you know, for the uh, for the very successful people in the industry, like the actual economic face, uh, the business of entertainment, and also the the talent, as it were, uh, because they mostly are going to have grown up in the middle class, the ascendant post war middle class, they're going to uh, see through the looking glass of capitalism and recognize themselves in the potential boss. Like they they take it for granted that they would be successful, that they would have money, that they wouldn't be uh, physically or mentally uh, uh, exploited. They would be the ones doing the exploitation. And so they seek to avoid guilt. And this is why entertainment is going to be liberal, because the, 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 the desire to absolve oneself of guilt is the prime psychic driver of liberalism, as opposed to conservatism, reaction, whatever you want to call it, the other pole of the capitalist psyche, which is to deny guilt, deny the existence of guilt. Those are the, and, and their politics flow from that, and they both try to enact socially for a liberal subject with money and power and position within a, a putative democracy. Uh, they have actual influence, and they're going to determine what it is. And so people in entertainment, they broadly... Uh, want to avoid that, you know? They want to avoid being in, in, indicated in it. And because it's a guilt-based thing, if they feel like they're telling the stories of capitalism, if they feel like they're helping capitalism succeed, helping all of its worst manifestations uh, continue their, you know, uh, uh, cancerous eating away at the human soul, no, they don't want to sell out. That's the fear of selling out. That was what it always was. And selling out became the, the prime uh, paranoia of the 90s precisely because we saw the edge of history happening coming in front of our faces and the recognition that, oh, you know, declining conditions under capitalism are all we're going to have. Like, this is the apogee. How are we going to handle that slide? Are we going to sit to the sidelines and maybe critique from outside culturally in a way that we convince ourselves is going to have a cumulative, cumulative political effect? 
or are we going to willingly sell our souls to capital itself so that we have security and money, but we also have uh, uh, this new blot on our soul? And it's the revulsion at that, the, the possibility of having to accept that brand uh, that marked that 90s phobia of selling out. But of course, now it's relevant. Everyone knows that the uh, the lifeboat is already sinking. You know, there's no uh, there's no future for this thing. So there's no fantasy of advancement. So the question is, what are you doing here now? Uh, but anyway, this is to say all the bad stuff that the CIA does, that the U.S. government does, eventually gets out. And when it gets out, it becomes diffused throughout people based on education and access to communication nodes. And that means people in entertainment more than anybody else are going to be twitching and perceptive to shit that flows through because they are positioned against the authority system. They imagine themselves in some way against a system. Sometimes it's just in the form of the studios they work for or, you know, the capital formations that they uh, are beholden to or uh, the broader the American government or capitalism more abstractly. Like, however you understand it, whatever face you're looking at it, you can emotionally uh, and artistically define yourself against it. And so when you hear about this stuff, when they hear about this stuff, it's going to get into movies. Everybody at every level is going to be like, I'd like to see that. Even the bean-counting uh, scumbag executives who've got to write a check, they recognize the broader trends in culture and say, oh, this is a story people want to hear. So there's money to be made. Now, you know, in the, in the vulgar Grantianism that we live with now, uh, there's this fantasy that, oh, this is, this, this is Lenin's uh, quote about the bourgeois selling the ropes that will hang them to you. Like, oh, like creating this, uh, this mass media apparatus that is, is going to cut your throat because we're going to be in charge of it and we're going to direct it at mobilizing the masses against you. Like, this is the liberal fantasy of revolution that is not grounded in class struggle because it can't be. It cannot be. Uh, it cannot be grounded in class struggle because these people are diffused throughout classes with different relationships to capitalism. Most of them closer to like artisans, uh, and as such, just not able to have the the compatibility of basic interests that exist within the, the proletariat, broadly speaking. Uh, and the thing is, like, there is hope there in organizing those people, but uh, this this cultural conflict that is happening, the cultural conflict that is happening and that sort of is uh, defining it fundamentally cannot determine the outcome because of its, its resistance to being incorporated into a working class movement. The working class movement is going to have to sort of emerge in conflict with it and to the sort of orthogonally to it and break through it. Because look what we get. We get the CIA drug trafficking. But how do we get it? We get it couched. We get it softened. We get it smoothed out. This is a combination of uh, the self-interest of the, of the people who fund it, the, the shared delusion of the audience itself that doesn't want to accept broadly, culturally, these uh, implications. Because, again, this audience is not the working class. This audience is American media consumers. And that is not a uh, group of people who are linked by a common relationship with capital which is what a class is in like the in the in the uh, as close to objective form as you can get that is what a class is people who share a relationship to capital the media consumption class that is also the political class that is also like the center of the uh, of the small holders of America the remaining 
the remaining uh, 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 percentage of Americans who are still holding on to a shard of, of the yeoman expropriation, the great, the great turning in America into this, this machine of surplus based on uh, labor exploitation of, uh, of slaves and of expropriation of natives that allows for this, this uh, middle-class society that, that's, that synthesizes and sublimates the class conflict of old Europe into something that is actually compatible with mass democracy, which it is not in Europe, which is what World War II proved. We created a machine that could handle that kind of crisis because the cushion within the political system, the lubricant created by this free real estate floating around. And the crisis of cap- the, the political crisis we're at the end stage of is that deal, that yeoman deal, slowly evaporating in the face of changing material conditions, which is the the uh, the situation where the U.S. is no longer able to just exploit endlessly outside of the the calculus of capitalism. Now, because we're part of a closed global system, we are now uh, inherent. We uh, now uh, profit making must be axiomatically cannibalistic. And American capitalism was not that, which is why it survived the 40s in in opposition to European capitalism. But that's because of free real estate. And now the free real estate is gone, but there's still this group of people who hold on to it, mostly in the form of their family's home equity for whatever you want to call the middle class, those people who share, who don't have a shared relationship to production, but are in, uh, but share the fact that they do not actually hold like meaningful capital outside of their property. Smallholders, literally, like this, 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 the last feudal remnant that couldn't be just blasted away by the hoses of capitalism because it was too close to its heart. It had to be euthanized over a long period of time. And that euthanization starts with uh, the American Revolution and has continued now into this fatal death spiral where there can be where where uh, or, uh, where democratic legitimacy is being dissolved like uh, from within uh, by this acid of immiseration, this downward trajectory of the American middle class, a.k.a. political class, a.k.a. media consuming class. So that means that even though there's uh, money to be made in telling the truth about capitalism as an artist, the more money that goes into that production, therefore, like the more likely it is to be seen somewhere that is a high capital outlay media venture, like film or television, mass media. This is, of course, before the Internet, which changes everything. We'll talk about that, too, later if we want to. But here we're talking about the the formation of like post-World War II mass media. The people my age, really, so this is all I can talk about still cling to is something that's like has real real uh, magic to it that still has you know some uh, some of um, uh, uh, oh fuck what's the word Walter Benjamin talks about it in uh, uh, the uh, art in the age of mechanical production but the it's the felt presence it's the felt energy of a real piece of art I forgot what the fuck it's in there somebody remind me uh, we still have that aura. I think he called it. Yeah, it's a real aura. We there's still have a, we have a real aura around things like tele, like film. I do anyway, and television. Now the new kids, the Zoomers. This is the end of the chain where this is all shattered into a million pieces in the form of this, you know, narcissistic me, social media where the sort of craft, the middle class craft, the indulgent post World War II aesthetic environment of like modernism and then postmodernism. Uh, that has no, that uh, has no appeal to them. 
it's passe. All the energy is gone. All the aura has departed. They now can only recognize like their reality. They can no longer maintain the fantasy that there is a distinction between the the set the uh, spectacle and our real lives. Meaning, like we cannot um, we cannot find any real meaning or like. Uh, yeah, any meaning at all in symbolic representations of life. We can only have it in symbolic, or we can only have it in uh, exact mirror-like mimicry of life. We have to shatter the, the line between spectacle and, and existence. Because it's the only way to uh, invest spectacle with the, enough emotional energy to make up for the screaming misery that is ever more impairing everyone's ability to function. And the thing that is totally sublimated out of our political system into social pathology. So we're, we're we're at the point where like, you can honestly say like uh, the metaverse will just be sort of a ironic cap or a, um, will just be like the cap on that because in many ways, we've been in the metaverse for a while now. I'd say about the last 20 years. And it's going to take more than acting within the confines of uh, the metaverse to change anything. It's going to take genuinely unplugging. Uh, and that means, you know, committing yourself to uh, non spectacular forms of political action. Unspectacular action. I guess that's what we're looking to create. And the thing is that the conditions are going to create it for us. And this is where I get into trouble and where I'm always being frustrated, but I'm also really building my own conviction every time I hit this wall, which is I can't say like what because I am in the goddamn metaverse with you. I am inside your headset. With you, okay? I am in the matrix with you. Anything I tell you is going to relate to how we communicate in the matrix, which is in generalities and in non-specific acts, because that's the only ones that we can all talk about at an equal level, because they're not happening to us. If they're happening to us, then we have a privileged relationship to it. But that privileged relationship doesn't allow for debate, which is the formation that, which is the motivation, uh, the structure, rather, of all political engagement. It's just something happens, and then you argue about what should be done or uh, what happened and how much it aligns with right. Right is an a- in an abstract term, in, an, in a totally idealized moral terms, because that's the only terms that we can talk to in the fucking matrix, inside the metaverse. Now, that doesn't mean we aren't acting. We're acting every day, but we're acting sort of uh, in a sort of a daze, in a trance, acting out the actions that this uh, mapping has, has uh, laid down for us. But what lets us stay in the mat, what lets us stay in the, 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 the helmet is comfort. Like, yes, I said, screaming misery that is making us all just uh, every day makes all of us feel like it's harder and harder to, to uh, imagine like a long-term sustaining of these conditions, right? You're just like, how can it, it feels so much worse. But the thing is, the worse it feels uh, in terms of emotion, the more you're driven to soothe that anxiety the way it was produced by trying to uh, craft 
a, a, a uh, relationship with politics that is uh, pseudo-active, but is actually totally passive. But that's still totally, I mean, it's still you sitting in a room, right? It's still you looking at a machine. It's still you breathing air. It's still you going to the bathroom. It's still you eating. It's still you having to not be on the Internet because you've got to go to work. Here it is. It is going on the Internet when you're at work. It's, it's you know, uh, it's having a drink with the friends, going to Dave and Buster's, talking to your coworkers about your conditions. That's all stuff you're also doing. But you're doing it both inside this helmet and also outside of it. And only if you can, like, look at your actual hands, you know what I mean, instead of the big fake ones that they have inside the shitty-looking fucking metaverse, you can't know what's really in front of you. There might be a hand to hold. There might be someone grasping towards yours that you couldn't see otherwise. And that is a cop-out because I'm not unplugged. I mean, I am. But I can't communicate my time when I'm unplugged onto the here place, this here place, onto this. I can't upload it. It gets turned through instant translation to everybody else as like all of the uh, high, um, the Wittgensteinian miscommunications just explode through the system. I can't relate to anything other than at these abstract points. So that means that my pop, my political content cannot at the end of the day, count in any conscious sense as political. Even though people engage with it in part to get their political rocks off, as it were. Uh, and, you know, that's a contradiction that I just have to live at the point of for now. Because I am in the condition where I do feel comfortable enough that I am able to soothe the general angst, you know, that flows through us all every day. I can, I can regulate it right now, which means I don't feel a need to, like, punch out of my conditions, as it were. But that doesn't mean I won't, is the thing. That's the neurosis of the uh, neutered uh, bug man, is, is the terror that when the time comes, you'll make the wrong choice. Uh, and you will uh, become a husk. And I think that really does drive liberal anxiety about Trump coming over, taking over and becoming a dictator. Because if you really take seriously ideas like uh, the idea, uh, if you really take global warming seriously, just get rid of everything else. You want to talk to people on their own level. These people, these liberals, they will, uh, by, as all liberals must, including conservative ones, they must ground their premises, not in the supernatural, but in an empirical understanding of the world around them. Right? They have to understand the world that way to understand everything that flows from that. And that means that they have a faith in the Western scientific imperial tradition. Because that is how we find, that's how we publicly deliberate these things that animate our politics and our uh, uh, theology and our, so, and our social lives and our, and our understandings of uh, the economic relationships. So that means that they accept that global warming is real, accelerating, caused by human activity, and must, uh, be, must cause an inst- almost instantaneous overnight shift in uh, the undergirding uh, not just uh, material in the form of, you know, our societies are cow- powered by carbon, but even our political and uh, social structures, because the petrodollar, it's energy dollars that, that actually 
uh, represent the real economic activity of the global system. That's the real blood in the veins. The veins are like the finance structure. The, the, the veins are all, uh, the capillaries are all those uh, securities and, and, uh, and uh, treasury bonds and uh, uh, like credit uh, or uh, currency exchanges, like all of those financial derivatives, all, all those financial uh, transactions come off of this real economy, of this sludge getting pulled out of the ground and then being moved through uh, capitalists' uh, vesicle structure. Uh, so how the hell do you get rid of that? You have to have radical, radical, radical politics because this structure won't do it. Joe Biden winning against Trump won't do it. Joe Biden winning against Trump is going to be part of the same process that has led us to this accelerating beyond uh, intervention feedback loop. So to say, oh, no, we need we need to keep Trump from losing. We need to keep we need to defend the Democrats and we need to defend democracy uh, because the work because that'll be better than this fascist takeover. But since we've established empirically that we cannot get, a, get rid of our, our social relations and our political structures outside of a revolutionary situation in time to turn the boat around. We know that. And we're not going to get that from the politics we have now, from the Brandons of the world. So you're saying we're defending that. That is a thing that leads to medium-term annihilation of everything. Now, I guess the argument is Trump taking over as Fuhrer accelerates destruction and isn't that more immoral but what that fails to take account of is that if this actually happened and by the way this is the reason i don't think it ever will and i think it's going to stay a liberal fantasy that they used to uh, soothe themselves that to to suck on the thumb sucker their little pacifier is the threat of trump taking over and obliterating obliterating democracy uh that's it's there it's the thing they're most uh terrified of uh, if that actually happened then you know there would be this veil this ideological veil broken this spell this degree of adherence to American institutions would be broken for millions of Americans under conditions of accelerating economic collapse this is what we have to remember things are going to keep getting worse and you know diseases and everything that is the undercurrenting reality here that is that is what's eating away at the, the foundation uh, well, hell, maybe they're going to have to act. Shit, people are going to have to do something. And what the liberal, so the liberal might not want that happen because they might fear of losing and they might fear of all the pain that's going to get caused unnecessarily. That's true. But they would not be so terrified of it that it overawed all their other considerations and made them, because here's the thing about these people, that terror makes them makes them do the math to say, okay, I've thought about it, and the most moral and ethical and politically effective thing I can do right now is keep talking about fascism on the Internet. Keep warning people about Trump taking power on the Internet. I have determined that that's the most effective use of my time. That is the problem with that reasoning, because it gets to that result. Because if you're talking about a presidential election, this is a giant fucking uh, ocean liner. This is the ever given. You're not turning it through individual action. You're turning it through collective action. Well... 
That means getting the ideas out there among the influencers so that they'll tell their people and they'll tell their people and they'll tell three friends and they'll tell four friends. And then what do you know? We've saved democracy. But if the thing broke, if Trump said, okay, I'm taking power, holy shit, people have to act. That's an opportunity. It's not something to be sought or worked towards because that's the ethical question that's separate from the, the more general moral questions, the ethical question of how you go about this stuff and, and bringing it about involves hurting people. So that's morally wrong. And don't do that. Like, you don't have to worry. You don't have to say, oh, no, this is uh, this is uh, this is accelerationism. It's like, no, because all you, have to, you can say this is the only opportunity there is for real movement on the political level. Like people act, acting in concert against conditions rather than letting them overwhelm them and push them around the way they, we've had been having, uh, which is you know summarized by the fact that the only populist anti-establishment movement with any real danger to taking power is a reactionary populist one because of the weakness of the uh, of the of the working class movement. So anyway, there's no. Uh, you should not seek this to happen, but you should recognize that it's not the end of the world. It's not, uh, it's not doom. Oh, this is over. It's not, you know what it isn't? It's not the fucking uh, comet hitting Earth and obliterating it like in Don't Look Up. It's not that. It's a, you're still there and you still have to make decisions. And what the liberal, the reason the liberal fears the Trump imperium more than anything, and lets it determine their politics and their actions in life and their identity and their uh, their uh, their centerings and where they put their orgone, like their orgone uh, 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 distribution uh, heuristic here, is based on a fear that when the time comes, they will freeze like rabbits. When, when the time comes, they will fail in the moment, and that means that, uh, that they will be destroyed. Because if you're fighting for something and you fall in battle, that's, that's Valhalla, I'm sorry, you know? Like, I know that's crude, but, like, uh, Hegel said that, like, any life that ends without purpose, like, you know, you're not moving towards a goal in the course of which you die, is like a, a cup of water being spilled on the floor. And, like, this is the romantic, like, uh, uh, mass cultural uh, uh, emotional matrix that, like, people are terrified of because they associate it with fascism. But it is below fascism. It comes before fascism. And it also powers socialist politics and class politics. So, like, they want Trump to come and destroy the whole thing. Because what they fear is that it won't, if there, if there is still stuff to do, they will take the coward's way out. And that means when they do die, many years later, later lying in your bed, you'll ask yourself if you could give it all for one chance, just one chance for freedom. Like they're all going to, they're all afraid they're going to be the ones who go home and die in their beds. And they're, they're right, they are because they're soft little marshmallows. We collectively, I'm not talking about Americans, my God, America is a horrible country that does awful things to people and just brutalizes them. But when I say we, I mean the broader audience of people in the sound of my voice. We all know who I'm talking about. It is a consumer subset of Americans. 
We, who sit and talk about politics in our online salon, like flaneurs of uh, Third Empire France or or uh, the coffee shop lads of 16th century London. We're all soft, but that means that the reaction, the political right is also soft. They like, they, they move through life and they, uh, uh, the, the reason that they heighten every uh, contra- conflict into uh, violence is because there is no one calling their bluff. And the fact is, is that there is a bluff to be called because these are soft little pu- pillow puffs and they, sure, they want to fight, but do they want to die? No, they do not want to die. Or they don't want to suffer material decline. They don't want any of that. The danger to American democracy, as it, we can laughingly call it, as in its institutional extinguishment, as opposed to like getting rid of whatever animating fundamental thing, which was gone long ago if it ever existed, which is we could argue about the origin of the American Revolution. And I think it's an interesting one. But either way, that light has been extinguished long ago. So anyway, let's get ourselves to the final two chapters of uh, Pandan and Grand Pandich Pandich and Grandins Pandans making of global capitalism, where we talk about once the the the, the new millennium, the last twenty years, because uh, the, the the end of the nineties is like when the bow is tied on global capitalism, and it is a thing; it's a contained system. It is, it is a normalized structure, and now it starts running, and immediately cl- fucking seizes up. Immediately. Within a decade of, of being brought into being, it seizes up, and it has a catastrophic crisis within it that is as violent to it as the Great Depression was. But now, because you don't, you have complex, uh, the, uh, a complex bureaucratic state structure, the United States Empire, and uh, legal system and uh, actual physical like technology, uh, you can respond to that in a way that's much more aggressive and that slows down its worst conflicts, but still distributes a hell of a lot of pain through this system. Um, and so these last two chapters talk about, the, it's two chapters. One, the, 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 the first instantiation, the first, uh, the, the, those two Bush years, those two Bush terms, uh, of, a, of, of capitalism really coming into its own, especially with China coming into the world market. And then the last chapter is the response to just the catastrophe uh, of uh, 2008 ends around time of Obama's re-election. So let's talk about it uh, and then kind of speculate on where, uh, where they think, what, what they would think of the, of, uh, of the last decade because man it feels like things are moving much much very fast and like a lot of the central premises of the, of the book I think have been like seriously challenged now because of how uh, fastly uh, the political destabilization has uh, that now is powering politics uh, or power, powering the global uh, system uh, has exploded because in the, in the during the Great Depression, uh, the crisis brought about conflict between capitalist states. 
And uh, they point out in the book that uh, in the new crisis economy, uh, that the, the conflict is between, within states, like within, but between class formations within states. And, and, and like by, more like through factions in each state uh, of capital, but more broadly. Uh, and they leave it there. But like we've seen just in the last 10 years since the book came out, this mass explosion of internal uh, state conflict uh, that, you know, has now led a lot of people who, you know, are theoretically uh, sober observers of the world around them to conclude that, the, it's closing time for our uh, system of governance. And you know what? I think that it's wishful thinking because, as I said, they will long for that annihilation. Uh, I think that it's more likely to maintain as this, uh, this light in the distance to keep people kind of fixed like deer in the headlights. But we'll see either way, and I'm not putting money on any of those odds because I am done predicting things. The idea should be to get as far away from the speculative as possible in politics. Uh, and thinking about the future, guessing about the future, that's literally scrying entrails. I mean, it's a flight. Could you get a more vivid example of the flight from reality that, that like projecting about politics does? Like, look what happened with uh, Nate Silver. He gave politically engaged people an excuse to give a shit about who is up four points in the Marist poll three months before a presidential election, that they had about one point zillion percent, a fraction of a percent to do with. That they were totally extraneous from, that would have happened the same whether they lived or died. Think about that. Think about the way we think about elections. Where we're fucking following the ship like it's a race we have money on, when in reality, it is a thing that has we have no actual control over. But we don't act like that. Our, like, we don't bet money on it. Some of us do now, you know, as we needed to chase the monkey and all that. And up heighten the stakes because the old stuff is running out of its potency. Uh, but mostly we just get our energy from helping the side. And which literally means just fantasizing about future elections and what the results are going to be. Closing your eyes and, and flying into the ether. It's an escape from reality. Uh, and it's the only... Uh, but it's, it's, it's also like a part and parcel of caring about politics as a spectator of politics. Like If that stuff doesn't matter, then we're back to the point where, oh no... Like this relationship I had to media that uh, was providing me with one set of uh, satisfactions is actually uh, providing me with something else, which is uh, something that's draining me of actual uh, health. Like it's, it's, it's hit, take, we're taking hit points by engaging with it. It's carcinogenic. And then trying to figure out how to decarcify our, decarcinogize our media diet. And, you know, that doesn't have to be anyone's goal in life or, like, single purpose. It can just be something that's in the back of your head that you think about once in a while. It's my job, right? Because, hey, I have, I have a stable relationship with capitalism. I am in a truce with capitalism right now because it's doing good by me right now. That's a thing I cannot ignore. Uh, so that means, okay, what am I doing for that money? This is what I'm doing. So what do I have to fill that with? This is what I'm going to fill it with. 
And at every stage, I have to rationalize, which we all do. Uh, I'm just saying that when that crack comes, when everybody gets fed up, it's not going to be collective. This is another liberal fantasy that leftists share, is that it will be an aha moment when everybody gets up and does the same thing. Can't happen. Can't happen. Everybody can have the same emotional response, but then they all live in completely different and mostly fractured, isolated, and atomized social relationships where their feelings cannot be translated into action in the same direction. And, the, and, the, uh, and you can't have that aha action in, outside of a catastrophe where it's people, oh, uh, if I stay in this house, I'm going to die. Like literally that. If I stay where I am, I'm going to die. Well, then they, that question is answered. And then you have to go out there and you have to meet the world. And you meet it on its own terms. The hope, though, is that you can get to a point where you can get out of the house and go do something because of a feeling and have your action resonate but that's because you're going to have an individual relationship where the thing breaks. You're going to have an individual time when something can no longer be sustained. And then you're going to have to act from it. And that means that the place where you're going to get a lot of people having the same thing at the same time is, say, a workplace. Whereas a common condition of immiseration that can cause a sort of common uh, emotional response to it that can be translated into action because of the fact that it is this simultaneous act, this aha or, or, or a chain reaction that can be sustained. I think that's more accurate. It's more like you only get one or two first, like popping bubble wrap, but every pop bubble can pop someone else's bubble. There is hope. It is there. And yeah, like we are, we like now. I just found out that the Rhine River is uh, like a foot away from being too shallow to navigate. With and it is one of the chief, uh, like, uh, arteries of like European uh, consumer goods traffic. This is basically like the fucking ever given in uh, the canal, but like permanently. So. We're entering a new phase of crisis, of contradictions accumulating. And that's going to have effects on all of us that we have to only be in the mind to receive. So once again, that's uh, all with the disclaimer that this is me, uh, you know, justifying my position. And it's up to you as the person listening to it to take it uh, and either dismiss it or accept it based on how it resonates to you and whether it sounds true. Uh, here I stand, I can do no other. Okay, so let's get to the damn book already. So we've got, uh, this is section six, Global Capitalist Millennium. Uh, and this is chapter 11. Ha! Very fitting. Although it should be the next one when the crisis happens, it should be chapter 11, but whatever. They, they got close. Chapter 11, World After Its Own Image, which is what... Uh, Marx in the manifesto says capitalism does, creates a world after its own image, an endless hall of mirrors. Uh, and you can see its expression in culture and, and the final dissolving of popular culture into social media, that that is in fact true at every level. That's one of those Marxist insights that can be attached to uh, a 
cross section of like the entire structure superstructure relationship. Like every level, it's there. Every level, it's applicable along the same reasoning axis. This is why Marxism is so great. This is why it's 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 an unbeatable heuristic for grasping uh, like the history of humanity. Because I do think it is a historical uh, discipline equally to, you know, uh, equally as deeply as it is a philosophical or or economical one. It's Will Smith's capital willennium. I fucked it up. How did I fuck that up? I'm such an idiot. I'm really dumb. I said all that shit and then I just fucking realized I biffed the hell out of the naming this thing. Maybe, all right, you know what I'll say? It's, It's... um, it's ironic. Okay. So chapter 11, life world after its own image, we get, uh, the nineties right up into, right up to, uh, the crisis. So like the, the long, the long nineties that go from 89 to 2001, basically, uh, that the last decade. So, Uh, what, is, what defines this period is a uh, huge tech titanic shift within manu- world manufacturing, uh, the creation of a new global division of labor, not between within a countries, but between countries, where certain types of labor is done in a low income periphery, and other types of labor is done in the uh, core, the imperial core, uh, and that's what defines the, this new system. And uh, one of the contradictions that's currently pulling it apart. So uh, what capital is able to do largely through the result, uh, largely through the leverage that American capital has through its institutions, the IMF and the World Trade Organization, uh, when these crises emerge, capitalism is imposed in these places, it creates crises, and then, the syst- and then capitalism itself is able to use those conditions to further entrench itself and extend its rule, even though it's responsible for the fucking crisis. It's, you can't beat it, man. You can't beat it. It's goddamn near everything. It's a perfect killing machine. It's like, uh, like, uh, oh, fuck, what's his name? Ian Holm in Alien Set. I admire its purity. It's the perfect machine to take over all human minds and wills. It's, it's a fucking, uh, it's, it's, it's a evil, it's a, it's a living God. It's an evil God. It's the devil, Lucifer, whatever you want to call it. It's just it's it is a alienated technology that reflects humanity's worst traits back at it as virtues. That's what it does, and so that makes everyone act consciously, unconsciously through coercion or consensus uh, in a psychotic, self-destructive way, like socially destructive, and what we've had until these 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 decades was other systems of existence that generated other outcomes that were orthogonal to capitalism that could con- uh, contest with capitalism for control of resources. But that's gone. This period is when it is all gone because it is these IMF loans extract uh, uh, reforms in these countries that create what they call institutional architecture, which is a, a commonality of institutions of regulation that promote things like best practices for accounting, uh, and uh, bank regulations, the entire structure of uh, state oversight that like 
capital markets have to work around. Like it's the armature that like it has to work with. They cannot be uh, extracted. Uh, so those those rules are unified, and they are unified along an American model, Anglo-American jurisprudence, good old common law, uh, and this, the primacy of property determine these reforms. Uh, and another organization that helps uh, extend this is the G20, which starts off as the G22, and then they bring it, they they start the process up, and then uh, uh, there's a later uh, meeting where some countries get kicked out of the G22, including Malaysia, which after the Asian crisis refused to uh, get rid of their capital controls, uh, they got the boot uh, out of there for violating their economic orthodoxy. Uh, And this sets up a model for austerity in the periphery, where these countries have to restructure their social spending. uh, and They have to... Uh, reduce basically not just you know uh, labor share of income, but also its uh, access to public goods. Like it has to shrink working class life uh, uh, experience. It has to curtail uh, 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 living standards. That's the word I'm looking for. And then, but in the st- in the center, stimulus. Uh, in the center, money. Mostly at the top, but there is a trickle-down effect. You know, that's not made up, but largely through credit. Not even so much through people like, oh, creating a real economy, but by the financialization of debt, the creation of this, uh, this economy of uh, credit card and mortgage-backed loans that allows people to purchase. Uh, and it varies from country to country. America is obviously the most consumer-based because we're the consumer country. We're the country that through its organs of global capitalism, imposed a value system of indulgence, personal pleasure uh, above anything, ease and convenience as the sum of human happiness. That is what America imposed on the world, that the sum of human happiness is a a, uh, hedonic pleasure, but not in, of course, the traditional sense of hedonic, where the notion that you're doing uh, what feels good, but what feels good is also what is good. But living in capitalism, where you're fully alienated, where you're looking through the glass, darn it, it's only associated now with uh, feeling with what's bad for other people, what's bad for you. So that pleasure comes at an expense, and that expense is this psychic angst, this scream that has to be suppressed and redirected elsewhere with pathological action. So that means the main thing we do in the United States is, yeah, we're not going to raise your living standards. Uh, We are not going to let your next generation of family keep your home. We're going to split up your your homestead, basically. But you're going to be able to access more short-term pleasure than you know what to do with. You have absolute freedom to indulge yourself. And again, this is not anyone's fault that they took this deal. It doesn't make Americans scumbags who are fat and love burger or whatever. It's the only deal that was on the table. The class system, the class uh, project that stood within it and opposed to this thing has been destroyed. Babylon has risen. Uh, um, Leviathan fucking smiles, as Al Swearingen said. 
And of course, it has not been universally adapted. Not all cultures feel that way, but uh, it's it's the model that these structures that are imposed are imposing, and they're changing the this, these structures from from the top, from the global center to the periphery. They're changing social structures, and this is the nut of the internal conflict between grounded landed capitalism and finance capitalism that marks politics in the advanced countries because the treats are running out right the ability to access short-term pleasure has been curtailed so people are feeling more alienated from politics more willing to work outside of its structures and where does that uh, energy go it goes to the right mostly because the democratic party and the labor parties of europe can no longer they no longer advance a class agenda they can't so that energy just floats uncaptured, whereas the right has structures to capture it with its uh, non-class-based critique, with its identity critique of American, however you want to conceive of that. And this is why the uh, National Socialist Project is a dead end, because they will always tail the fascist middle class, always. They can't only tail the fascist middle class because they're acting together in a class interest that is in a ambiguous relationship to capitalism, where there are still treats to be had extracted from capitalism, as opposed to the worker who is incapable of accessing that. So even though you might have workers who are stirred to the cause of socialism through the lens of these, um, these like nationalist concepts that are like, you know, reproduced in hierarchical notions of pet gender and race and all this stuff, uh, you will only be able to act as a bunch of individual nationalists. Your working uh, interests will be diluted by the collective and overwhelming interest of the numerically larger and, uh, and uh, positionally more dominant middle class. Small bourgeois, when I say middle class now. Small bourgeois, holders of capital. They'll bash you to death. So the entire post-left project is fundamentally doomed because the math does not work. You got X number of middle-class people aligned on a propertarian defense of hierarchy. That's what they want. That's what their motive is. It is a self-interested, self-aware, when they become nationalists, self-aware hierarchy. Godly divine, however you want to call whatever you want to call God. Um, they will, their dominance within the political structure will dwarf your workers' contribution. The fucking Iranian revolution is proof of this. The reactionary heartlands, and it was a middle the the the, uh, the Ayatollahs social base, by the way, were landowners. Who were reacting to not just uh, the fat, the um, authoritarianism of the Shah, but to his process of land redistribution, which he was forced to do, by the way, by Carter, who wanted to do some like Kennedy-style shit, where it's like, oh, let's stop squeezing the peasants of Iran, and in so doing, in redistributing land, he awoke this uh, sleeping dragon of religious uh, Orthodox Shia resistance. And the, the Marxist kids in the cities 
also hated the Shah, but for different reasons. And they worked together to overthrow them. And then once the war was once the revolution had been won, the left was uh, neutralized, physically, politically, wiped off the map. Thousands fucking hung from cranes. Okay, so let's get back to this damn book. Uh, so the, uh, the the crisis that emerges in the 90s, uh, the U.S.-led order is able to use to create an environment of equal protection within each country for their domestic banks and foreign banks, domestic investors and foreign investors. So there's an equal playing field, which, of course, is not an equal playing field because of the huge... Uh, Symmetry and power and in capital holdings that these two countries are engaged with, which means that an equal playing field favors in every instance to a determining factor uh, Western countries like this is what makes this an imperial domination. Basically, is this fake equality? This is liberalism at its finest, a fake formal equality that actually perpetuates domination here, the domination of the West headquartered in the United States to the periphery, because now you guys have equal treatment, which favors larger concentrations of capital. But what this causes is this huge explosion of money swashing through the system, which is why all the individual bourgeois and governing figures in these countries all signed off on this. They didn't really have to have their fucking arms pulled. Like, a few of them had to get killed, like Allende or whatever, but for the most part, they were happy to do it. Twist my arm, because they were representing national bourgeois who wanted access to those funds, who didn't really give a shit about uh, the, their countrymen, who dominated and exploited them. So you have this huge explosion in financial flows and in, and in uh, loans and security purchases, stocks, bonds, like flop, uh, swishing around the world, uh, money being borrowed, money being uh, invested. You go from a trillion dollars in 1990 in foreign uh, uh, financial movement in a year to 11 trillion by 2007. From one to 11, from 1990 to 2007, that was like a whole damn. That's all all derivatives. You have by 2007, there is a $5 trillion a day turnover in financial contracts. Currency is being swapped, bonds are being purchased, stocks are flowing at a rate of five trillion a day. So this is and, and this is but this is all on top of the real economy. And uh, these guys take pains at one point to say, and I'll talk about it in the other chapter, that, that you can't really say that it's not the real economy because it's essentially you know the blood vessels, as I said, and like it, it, it moves everything through it. So it is the real economy, uh, but it is the real economy in crisis. Is the real economy no longer able to uh, output what it used to because of differing inputs? Because the because capitalism is literally draining the earth, and the rate of cap and the rate of profit is declining even faster, which means that the uh, mad need to eat out all of the structural innards that allow this thing to progress, the states like the United States that actually allow this thing to continue, has come to a fatal point. This is a contradiction that cannot be internally resolved, and it is critical. And this differs only from previous uh, 
crises at the end of capital of a, of a system of class rule only and it's global like this has happened a million times before all this has happened before all this will happen again as they say on Battlestar Galactica capitalism is just the latest in a series of class uh, of, of uh, engines social engines for class rule vehicles for a certain class rule uh, a collection of people which has been remarkably stable throughout of all of human history um and all of them come to a fatal crisis and collapse from within. Uh, the only difference now is that this is within a closed global system. So what does collapse in that context mean? And that is what we're terrified of. Uh, because we think it means the, mean, the ends of everything because we cannot imagine life in any other way. Capital realism, ding, ding, ding. But of course, that doesn't mean life won't continue. And we will not have to necessarily step through the gate bravely to encounter the moment of truth. It, can be, it will be thrust upon us and we will act as humans. And if you have faith in your own humanity, that you should have faith, you should have an equal amount of faith in others. And so that means you should have some sense of stillness to face this crisis with. I get a lot of people hate themselves and therefore hate everybody else, but that's really just uh, an indulgent self-love and, a, and a, uh, a desire to basically pamper yourself into oblivion. Like you can just uh, you can just keep swaddling yourself in uh, pleasures that you disguise as masochistic pain, but are in fact actually deeply pleasurable. The agonies of political uh, pretension, and of course, self-destructive use of drugs or uh, alcohol or food or whatever. So in two, by 2008, uh, you've got foreign bank loans to developing countries uh, in the neighborhoods of $1.5 trillion in Asian countries, $900 billion in Eastern Europe, the former communist bloc, and $800 billion in Latin America, uh, significantly less in Africa. Africa never really did get developed uh, before capitalism started to uh, its, its crisis. Like that's, That is the difference between Africa and everywhere else, really, is that it was the last in line to get uh, capitalized when uh, the uh, input system, the, the undergirding uh, uh, material economy, economics of the thing, broke. When, when uh, entropy of a certain degree entered the system, uh, profits began their inexorable uh, downward trajectory, absent intervention in the form of uh, neoliberalism, retrenchment, and the undevelopment of Africa. Money that would have gone to develop Africa profitably, but slowly in the in the in the post-war uh, model, uh, instead had to uh, uh, get maximum profits in minimum time, which means hyper exploitation at the point of a gun. Like uh, primitive accumulation is still alive and well at the end of the capitalist chain of development because it never sustained a uh, equilibrium for long enough to distribute to Africa, nor could it have. Because it was never able to impute, uh, was never able to make its calculations. No human within it, the thing itself, could not make its calculations with a real understanding of how many resources it had access to. Because it's, the resources are where the real pain is happening. And that pain has to be invisible. It cannot be calculated in the system. So it cannot be absorbed. It cannot be perceived. But that pain, uh, uh, plants, animals, species dying, 
disequilibrium being entered into the, the pain matrix of, of sustainable ecosystems? That cannot be calculated. So you'll never know until it's too late when you hit it. And that's what we've done. Every society, every civilization has hit it because its ruling class is committed to living in the bubble where their, uh, their domination is justified. And they'll never leave. They can only fall uh, in, from the top or be pushed. Uh, but of course, this money, the money, it's all for the tidal gravity, as Ned Beatty said. So, yes, all this money goes to Asia, but then, and, and, out, and uh, Eastern Europe and Latin America, but it also has to come back to the United States in the form of U.S. Treasury bonds purchased to fill the reserves of countries that just saw all those Asian uh, economies destroyed by currency runs. Well, they can't run on your currency if you've got a bunch of U.S. dollars sitting in reserve. If you have dollar-denominated assets under state control, you cannot be run out on because their capital, uh, because you will still be able to back your currency with that, as opposed to backing with the credit that they were floating you, which is basically how financing uh, economies works. It used to be gold, now it's treasury bills. The closest thing, because the American state is the most, it is the keystone, it needs to fucking uh, be stable, so therefore, we all assume it's stability eternally, so religiously, because it is the first thing, it's the first mover, it's the uh, defining, it's the God, basically, and if it dies, then everything dies, because you can't conceive of anything else, you can't conceive of change, because you've been We've all been bewitched, bedazzled, hoodwinked, run amok, hornswoggled even. So there's investment in these countries, but they're, but they're also, governments are also buying treasuries or, uh, so that they have these reserves, so that their economies cannot, uh, so they'll have some control over their, their issuance of currency. Uh, but but here's the problem with this. Like you can say, this is noble. All right, get these reserves, buy these treasuries, uh, defend, protect your currency. But another condition of this uh, state of affairs is that exports in these countries have to wildly exceed imports. They have they cannot have their dollars going out of the country buying shit, so that it can get turned into a dollars in America. So that means that. There has to be an explicit policy of limiting working class incomes because the more money the working class that these countries have, the more they're going to spend it on stuff from other countries because these countries did not develop internal. Uh, they were not able to do import substitution economics for long enough because remember, it got destroyed by the Volcker shock. They did not uh, hold on. They, they could not develop those like high tech, high end industries that give the kind of consumer products that people are going to buy if they have money now and and they're going to make them feel like they have control of their lives. All the, all the stuff that, that we've all been rewired with, all the madman shit, all the Pavlovian zombification that everybody is exposed to. The stuff they're going to buy is not made in that country, which means there go those dollars, or there goes those uh, those reserves. You're but once again vulnerable to a bank run. So they explode. They built low cost, low capital investment. Uh, uh, manufacturing, and that became the basis for their economy. They stopped uh, the the old way that peripheral countries were related to the United States was they would provide cheap exports in the form of agriculture and natural resources. 
Now they would provide labor. Labor that used to get done in the center would move to the periphery. So that those former people who couldn't get college degrees, who used to work in factories together and therefore be in unions together, that could work to elect political candidates, that could push their agendas and their economic uh, self-interest, gone. So they get to what? They get to die is what they get. The hope is that they die. They are falling into the cauldron of, of, the pro, of the proletariat, the real proletarianized American subject, which is finally emerging on the stage of history. Uh, and it's causing middle-class hysteria because they all are terrified of falling in or their kids falling in. Because if you, if for a while it was if you have a college degree, you didn't have to worry about that. And that's why the political system was stabilized, because college-educated people, that's a lot of them by that point, because the U.S. was handing out those degrees like Pez after World War II. So that means there's plenty of people who, have col- who sent their kids to college, who have a home that they got with a GI Bill, who are like, all right, this is still good. Everybody who got fucked ended up becoming apolitical, uh, working more, je- more hours for less money at other jobs, dealing with all the social pathologies that come with that, uh, dealing with drug abuse, crime, all the things of poverty, which is the inevitable trajectory of everybody who has no more, no more access to upward mobility in an ever-widening ever gyre of exploitation. There's nowhere else to go. And that is why I understand why people get conspiratorial about fucking oxy and fentanyl. Because you've got this now efflorescence of, of downwardly mobile Americans who we used to be and whose families are still connected to, you know, the, the middle class patrimony uh, just left adrift. What if they got political? What if they even if they didn't get political? What if they just stayed uh, antisocial? That means conflict with the law. That means conflict with the state. That means repression. That means having to fucking put them in jail, having to pay for them to be in jail, having to put money that should be going to profits in, into this. Good news is money profit can be made off of it, but it's still not where we'd rather put it. When we could just, oh, what's this? Have them all kill themselves. The same thing, the same asphyxiation strategy and a, a drug-abated asphyxiation strategy that was applied to the uh, black inner cities in the 70s and 80s. Just advanced up the... Uh, the chain of crisis, the declining uh, profit crisis that we've been in at the, during the same time. Put some of them in jail, the rest hopefully kill themselves. Uh, I, don't, I only recently found this out, but more people uh, were killed in the 1980s gang wars between the Bloods and the Crips than were killed during the Troubles in Northern Ireland during that same period of time. Uh and it was essentially the same phenomenon in both cities. It was a group of uh, working class, uh, socially alienated, as in like not not part of the dominant, uh, you know, because these are cap- advanced capitalist countries. They have a notion of like middle class uh, existence, propriety. They're outside of that ethnically, uh, but they're also. Uh, until the 70s, they have access to some conception of upward advancement. And you see that in the building of like real wealth in black communities 
in up until the 60s and 70s. It's that wealth that launched, really, the civil rights movement in the sense that it was the workers. It was people who had experience mobilizing and acting as workers within the black community who formed the real spine of the civil rights movement. Uh, one of the chief organizers of the Montgomery bus boycott was a member of A. Philip Randolph's Brotherhood of uh, Sleeping Car Porters. Otis Nixon, I believe his name was. Uh But by the 70s, those structures are gone. And soon the economic base that allowed it to exist, the factory jobs are gone, leaving these people. What are they to do? There are fewer jobs available. They're more uh, immiserating physically. They're uh, lower paying. But there's this shadow economy that you can participate in. Now, in Northern Ireland, it's political because of the specific historical relationship between Catholics and Protestants in Ireland, how it created like the first racial caste system, really. Like the, the, the English basically pr- practiced on the Irish what they eventually imposed on the Africans. That's not to say that they had it worse. It's just that they were essentially the imperial laboratory. And because of that, uh, the violence that emerges from these guys who have no jobs to go to but are still young, vital men uh, and have access to guns and, and, and can organize, it moves in a political direction. It, 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 and, and, of course, it ends up engaging with this fratricidal, this class fratricidal war against the uh, totally uh, idealized, uh, I'm sorry, the totally uh, ideologically propagandized and... Um, and essentially brainwashed um, working class Protestants who face the same downward trajectory but are not alienated from the state the same way but who now have this enemy to fight. And it gives everybody a thing to do. And they kill thousands of people and they nearly blow up uh, Queen Elizabeth. Uh, they nearly blow up Margaret Thatcher. And this is a huge global story. Uh, and it involves mix across the country sending money to the Northern Irish Relief uh, Fund, which goes to buy Armalites and shit. Meanwhile, in America, where the black political project has been destroyed, uh, I mean, and literally destroyed by the state in the form of COINTELPRO sabotage, the, 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 uh, the, the gang war is impossible to understand outside of the context of the state destruction of the political arm of uh, urban black proletarians. Uh, And with that destruction, there's only uh, survival in the form of uh, making money in the black market and organizing to do so, which of course creates, you know, territorial conflict and you get the same venting basically of violence and at an even higher level. And meanwhile, those fat mics sitting on bar stools and, fucking Summerbury or whatever the fuck. Uh, they're looking at, on the TV at the, at the uh, Rodney King riots and going, ah, shoot them, get the guns. Because of the veil of, uh, of racial uh, mysticism that is ever over everybody's face. So this new global, uh, but this is key, this new global division of labor, it 
accumulates low-skill uh, 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 manufacturing in the periphery, but high-skill administration and engineering stuff uh, in the center. Uh, and the stuff in the center is like tightly controlled by the company itself is like key element of like the company, a uh, direct expenditure. Whereas the comp- the uh, people actually doing the manufacturing uh, in these countries are often independent suppliers who aren't even formally uh, part of the ownership portfolio of uh, the company. And this, you know, perpetuates and can only perpetuate a, a widening of a, global uh of a split a widening of of uh the gap between these two countries and a direct transfer of wealth from one to the other when you make an iphone half so so there's half the cost of an iphone is uh slapped on by uh apple on top of the actual costs to make it in asia there's like 62 factories in different countries that make different parts of it that are then brought to to china for final assembly only like one percent of an iphone is actually made in china apparently uh and then sent to the u.s but the u.s's uh profit premium that they slap on is all uh to go to Domestic costs like engineering, like menu, like uh, marketing. Uh, so, a disproportionate percentage of the money from the making of an iPhone stays in the U.S. and doesn't go to these countries, and of course, doesn't go to their workers. So yes, so the middle class is the, the the working class who could get to the middle class, the working middle class. They're a dying institution. They're gonna. They're going to die out, and their kids are going to die young, basically. Uh, and they know it, and there's nothing they can do about it. Some of it is political. Most of it is just despair. But, of course, all of it politically mostly goes to the right because they have a coherent, violent uh, relationship, a violent alienation to the state that can't be matched on the left. Uh, institutionally, sure, there are left. Like George Floyd protests showed it. People want to fight the, st- the state, but there are no structures to hold that in- that uh, interest. The Democratic Party spent twenty twenty saying, "No, no, 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 uh-uh, no, no, thank you. Uh, we have nothing. We do not want this." Of course, there's all these idiots who say, "Oh, the Democrats like did the fucking riots and they wanted it to happen. They were terrified and they wanted to disassociate themselves from it immediately because they." Their fundamental remit is to prevent that from happening. It's part of the structure, the DNA of the Democratic Party. It can't do anything but that. So that means any there is no left-wing container for downwardly mobile, white, middle-class precarity, misery, alienation. There's no container for it currently. doesn't mean there won't still always be one. Right now, there isn't one. It's all going to get contained by the right. But somebody's kids are going to have uh, uh, still have an opportunity. If there wasn't, then who's going to vote for these candidates? Who's going to pretend democracy still exists? And that is that percentage of the uh, people with houses whose kids went to college. And they were working class. They were small business owners. They were professional managers, maybe even. All they have in common is they own houses and they send their kids to college. Millions and millions of them. And the promise now is manufacturing jobs are gone. They're gone to places where people make very much less money. But here you can make a decent salary, get your own house, working in the high-tech industries, in the business services economy. 
and servicing those things, educating people in those. But you need to go to college for this. You need to perform the rituals of uh, compliance to the mores of the ruling class. You have to learn, basically, how to raise your pinky when you drink tea, because you're basically going to go into a big fancy dinner party. And that is what college is for. Because you can't have everybody rushing up into the middle classes. You have to, uh, you have to screen. The way you screen is making hoops for people to jump. And the more hoops they're willing to jump is related to the more they are psychically and personally uh, suborned to the American capitalist state. Right? Like, you're not going to work hard to do good in school so you can get to the top and get these jobs doing this stuff if you don't have a belief in what you're doing. That belief in what you're doing has to connect to a belief that the system it's embedded in. At a certain point, if you lose faith in the systems that it's embedded in, you lose motivation to keep jumping through hoops. So that means the people who get out on the other side are going to be, some of them are going to be working class people who are so traumatized by poverty and precarity that they are now psychically driven like fucking hamsters to just run away from it as fast as possible and are going to use any means to do so. But mostly it's going to be people who grow up pretty comfortably and who want to keep living comfortably and maybe even more comfortably and who have a, a pride and an ability a mental ability of some kind that they can that they can perform that they can carry out and be remunerated for. They don't have to do with their brain what they don't want. They can they can take the stuff they like thinking about and and the stuff they like acting on and turn it into a job. That's the dream of college. Not one for one. You got to be within a limit, but you get some choice. Because if you don't have a choice, if you have to if you take the job that you have to take, you've lost your mind to the job. And you will spend every moment at that job alienated to a degree that somebody who does not feel that degree of compulsion won't feel. But there is this, there is this opportunity, and millions of people flowed into it, from the working people whose parents worked on factory lines, people whose parents were dentists. They all did it, and they made this new cadre, and it was... Still a track up until the point where the balloon not that's on. Uh, but not just in things like the academy or uh, entertainment or uh, engineering or, or, or tech or anything. You also have the uh, financialized economy creating a new uh, category of you know bureaucrats, people who have. Like specific skill sets can apply their uh, minds to. And this is as an economy is completely financialized. Uh, uh, These companies, uh, the ones that still manufacture things, are also financializing their profits. They're borrowing tons of money because of low interest rates. They're uh, investing the pensions of their employees in different uh, funds. They're buying stock back. and the way that uh, Pandan describes this is, as I say, many people think of the 90s as the hollowing out of American, agri- of American uh, manufacturing, but it's actually the restructuring of American manufacturing. Now, of course, that means whole entire communities died on the vine. But, of course, within the greater context of the American economy, 
moving that capital to the big cities to create knowledge centers that produce even more profits, that's a net win. It's only a loss for those people in those towns. And they don't really have a voice. Their alienation and pain is now added to the chorus of the trees that got cut down to build their fucking houses. And the animals that got hunted to extinction and the plants that got fucking uh, defoliated. That was all happening and it was invisible. And all the misery now being piled up is invisible. So for people who, at the, at the, who think they're in charge of this thing, they think this is all good. People misunderstand this. We're, we're building a new economy. This is why Clinton always talked about education. Oh, we're going to retrain all those fucking dumbass uh, miners and they're going to fucking work in clickety-clap jobs. But everybody can't work the clickety-clap job. The, 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 uh, the, the funnel, the limiting process is structural. The, the, the bottleneck is necessary for the, for the actual flow of the thing. You can't get rid of it. Um, so a huge amount of buying power is wiped out of non-college educated workers because their kids can't get those jobs. Those jobs gone away. They got fired. Uh, but they're still spending money more than you would think given how less money they have. And their suburban uh, counterparts whose incomes are flat, even though they're more comfortable, they uh, also keep spending because the gap in uh, uh, is now being filled with credit, consumer credit. Only, only America can do this because only America can be allowed to do this. Any other country tries to do that kind of thing, they are punished with a run on their currency. But America is the currency, and its stability is necessary to the system stability. So we can do that. Like all the structures we've talked about have allowed the United States to not have to worry about the, the, the disciplinary nature of, of, uh, of inflation because of its centrality to the system. We pretend otherwise for political reasons to punish and destroy the working class and lower and keep them uh, in a condition of abjection relative to capital. Uh, but people are still able to get this money from credit, from mortgages, and they spend it. So the consumer spending in the United States is still the engine of the American economy, but it's all now being borrowed, basically from the world. And this created, though, in American commentariat, this mirage, this terror of a trade deficit. Uh, so while this is happening, we're building this thing that's monumentally uh, advantageous to American industry. But there's this horror in, the, in politics about a trade deficit. And that's because they can't talk about loss of jobs, because that has to happen anyway. Trade deficit is a fake made up thing. Oh, no, we're, we're not trading enough. Because, yes, every iPhone that gets sold increases the U.S. trade deficit. But... It also is a huge shift of surplus to the U.S. from the rest of the world. And as a result of that, by the, uh, end, of the, uh, by, by the, by the end of the crisis, by, by the beginning of the crisis at the apogee, at like 2006, uh, profits relative to the U.S. GDP were higher than they've been since 1945. So they have gone back to the super profit days, even before <clears throat> of the post-war uh, economy, and they surpassed them. But by cannibalizing their economies, by destroying the middle class engine of consumption, the thing that actually made it work, which was the connection to a manufacturing economy, a, a production and consumption economy, 
We've created this instead, this pure consumption economy. It's fundamentally unstable. And sure enough, we're going to see in the next chapter, as soon as it's built, it collapses. The last piece, though, to put this thing together, the necessary component to build this thing, is the integration of China into the American system. So China recognizes in the 90s, oh, shit, we're going to get squashed if we don't have American dollar reserves. They figure that out everybody else. That means exports. But because of the size of their economy, they're able to operate from a, a better bargaining position, basically. I mean, they have nukes, for example. <laughs> then all these other countries are kind of got squashed by the crisis. So to deal with this, first in 1994, they, they devalued their currency, their renminbi, which is a thing you want to do if you want to boost imports because it makes your products ch uh, more cheaper on the world market, more desirable. Uh, and then in 2001, they were admitted into the World Trade Organization. They made a bunch of concessions to regulators to not fully, like they never opened their uh, economy and they certainly never opened their, uh, their finance system to reform to the degree the other countries did because they didn't have to. They had so many people dangling there. Like the, the market was so big and tantalizing and all that possible labor, they had such leverage that they could insist on maintaining control. But they did significantly liberalize their, their laws. They equalized their laws the same way that they did in other countries. Um, and they created a bunch of domestic capitalist institutions to try to meet this new wave of American and uh, Western investment to build these manufacturers that are going to be able to increase profits by minimizing labor costs. And the thing that makes this even more, this deal even better for the West is that not only are these going to be people from countries that are much poorer, but the people doing the majority of this labor are going to be people with no real rights because, you know, the question in China is, okay, we're going to exploit the shit out of our people in order to build capitalism because we have to to avoid the fate of the Soviet Union. And, you know, I can't argue with their reasoning. I probably would have thought the same thing if I was in those rooms. But that means breaking the... Uh, the notion of like citizen uh, rights and uh, responsibilities, the iron rice bowl of civic protect of, uh, of, of social welfare that had uh, undergirded the industrial economy in the, in the seventies and eighties. We can't just take this from them. That's going to be wildly destabilizing. And it, and it, it was, Tiananmen Squares were kind of an example of that friction. But uh, what they basically did in China was create an internal army of non-persons. Because you know, in, in other countries, where the, uh, before this new, this, this new outcome, this new setup, the ideal worker, and still to this day in the West, the ideal worker is, a, uh, is, a foreign, is an illegal immigrant because they have no leverage. You can just call the cops on them anytime you want. They cannot, they have no legal rights and they have no safety net. Like these Chinese citizens had gotten a safety net. They had, they had rights. They had uh, accesses to public goods. And the more of those you have, the harder it is to be mega exploited. So China creates this system of uh, internal uh, 
fixedness where you are essentially like a medieval serf, uh, not a, not allowed legally, technically, to leave the area that you are registered at birth. So if you're born in uh, the um, in the deeply poor Western country, uh, uh, farm agriculture country of like China, uh, you are required to keep access to. Uh, rights and, and uh, emollients, you know, healthcare, things like that, education. You have to stay where you're registered. Uh, but when they start building these factories in these cities, uh, the, the, as they happen everywhere else in the, in the world, the siren call of, of labor in the city brings, like a fucking magnet pulling filings, brings uh, excess landed or uh, excess landless. Uh, rural proletarians to it. If you don't have any land, if you can't sustain yourself on the land and you can only be a hired laborer in a rural area, you have absolutely no potential for any kind of uh, upward advancement in life. There's nothing you can pine for even. You, you're there. But life in the city promises a degree of upward trajectory that is ir- irresistible, always is. So you have a situation where in 1978, 70% of work in uh, of labor in China is agriculture. Thirty percent of it is non. By two thousand four, it switched. Seventy percent is now non. Thirty percent is agriculture, and that is a huge m- bunch of people in the rural parts of China moving to these cities, where they become internal migrants who have no access to public provision uh, and no real rights to be there. But of course, they're allowed to stay there to collect those low pro- low wages in a condition where they can't really organize their own interests. It's pretty ingenious. But again, you can argue, from the Chinese perspective, if you want to keep any kind of uh, idea of human values alive in the system that we have, if you want to keep any dreams of, uh, of what it is to be a Chinese or a member of the global proletariat or whatever the fuck abstract category that you value as a person, the only way to keep that embedded uh, in control of this thing is if we accede to the reality that a global capitalist system can beat people into submission. And when they've been totally destroyed, then they've become abject. And you want to see that? You look at Africa. Population about the size of China's. But never subject to the organizing principle that drove Chinese civilization. Uh and the last reached by uh, the developmental arm of capitalism. So this is somewhere in the neighborhood of 150 million uh, internally uh, migrant Chinese who are Chinese people, but because not they were never no one ever pointed to them and said you're no longer Chinese, you're no longer a part of the of, of our people, you're no longer part of our nation. You're no longer part of our grand project of of communism. You just made the you made the criminal decision to leave your neighborhood, and now we don't have to fucking uh, listen to you when you say you're being hyper exploited by your employer. Get back to work. But much more than rights, though, it's about just the fact that they have no they have no recourse and they have no safety net. The safety net thing is really big. 
Because more than any kind of a system of conflict, it's just basic security that makes you willing to uh, stand up for yourself. Absent that, you're just one foot in front of the other. So what this does in China is it lowers poverty hugely. And I've said this before, but anybody who loves to jack off about how ca capitalism ri r took a zillion people out of poverty in the 20th century, that's almost all China. That is almost all in a place where, uh, where capitalism was managed to the greatest degree it was anywhere else, where there was a human hand at the tiller to a greater degree than anywhere else. Uh, everywhere else you saw stagnation or even decline but huge rise in inequality. So there's less poverty in China, but there's much, much more inequality. Um, and as a result of that, there's a dearth of consumption in the, the, the Chinese market, which is why they are so dependent on American exports and American, American consumption, and why they keep buying our fucking bonds and we can never stop. They need to keep buying our fucking treasuries. They cannot, they cannot discipline us or own us epically, Mao style. They cannot conduct uh, the Third World War against the capitalist West or any of that bullshit without collapsing their own economy. Because at this point, anyway, there's still uh, just too low a degree of consumption per person, uh, which means the U.S. market has to make that up. And so they export a ton of stuff for us to just hoover up like piglets. Like every time I watch Shark Tank and I see some fucking dumb gadget... I just think this is why America is indispensable and where, why we're not going to get a replacement for the dollar anytime soon. I saw this thing called beard mints on uh, Shark Tank once, and they were tiny little ornaments that you'd hang in your beard. And it got funded, and it ended up being a big success. And I just remember thinking, no one on earth but an American would buy that. And that means then... That if you have a factory that needs to be open to make those fucking things, you need Americans to buy them. If you want to keep that factory in, in Wuhan open, you need some dumbass in America who will, put, who will pay 15 bucks for something that costs a quarter of a cent to hang on their fucking beards. So this is a situation in the second Bush term. You've got a juicy, fat Huge profit sheets. Everybody's making so much money. It's, it's throbbing. Oh, my God. Baby, we've never had such a robust, sweet, juicy economy. Corporate profits are through the roof. The balance sheets look great. We're loving it. There's only a little bit of, uh, there's a little bit of friction. You got, the, uh, you got the Argentinian crisis, but that's okay. They kind of let them go off and, and do their own political revolution and, and you know, a default. And they were fine. You know, there's always... Big crash, it hurts, and then you go, real business cycle kicks in, it's fine. Um, but this is a period of sustained low interest rates because you have the, the, the dot-com bubble bursts uh, in 2001, and there's a short recession that only lasts until November uh, and is um, basically ended by the fucking spigot of low interest rates being opened uh, by the Fed. And the real estate market becomes, in this context, the uh, uh, investment of last resort globally. The place to park money. You can buy treasuries, but you can't only buy treasuries. You need something with a pr higher promise of return. Because if you can borrow at a low interest, you can 
If you can put money into something that's got a higher return, you're basically set. You've got an instant, you've got a guaranteed pipeline of profit. Uh, and what that looked like for a long time was U.S. real estate, because it had been uh, uh, securitized. There had been a um, bridging of the gap between high finance and low. You've got high finance in the form of international, uh, giant international banks, and then low uh, finance in the humble home mortgage, which was the most localized and boringest and, and low, lowest sort of return, uh, the safest, you know, guaranteed return, but it's not going to be substantial uh, uh, sort of finance in America. And uh, the securitization of the mortgage connects these and allows these huge houses, huge uh investors to see profit out of this and it's by we all know this story getting a bunch of fucking um mortgages together chopping them up selling them into pieces diluting the risk of any one of them so that the uh the overall uh risk is relatively low but you can and and then that means there's more willingness to borrow and this becomes twistedly the way that guys like a clinton uh, imagine they're going to fix the black home ownership problem because we talk about those GIs who got that sweet deal after World War II. Uh, African-Americans were pointedly uh, redlined out of that deal. And the difference to this day in uh, wealth between the average white and black American is about the cost, at least it used to be, of, of one home. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, in a average uh, market. And, of course, you know, uh, the old days of direct provision, that's not happening. Of course, we never built public housing. But instead, what we'll do is we'll create these new uh, collateralized mortgage systems that allow for things like uh, adjustable rate mortgages, which are much uh, riskier, higher profit margin and incentive for the, uh, for the, for the lender, uh, and a good deal for the borrower as long as that rate stays low. Um, and then back be, the, these... Uh, and then finally, this is allowed to happen because of the fact that Freddie and Fat, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, these quasi-government organizations, are backing these transactions and making tons of money off of swapping these things and acting as like a uh, a clearinghouse for all these uh, new federally secured mortgages that are on much, much, much flimsier economic basis than previous ones have been. Because you know you're not giving somebody a thirty rate fi- a thirty year fixed to somebody who's got a factory job. We're now talking about people who are working much more uh, uh, unpredictably, whose income is much more vulnerable, who uh, have more debt. That's a huge part of it. Who have more debt other than uh, a mortgage. And are now just being told, okay, yeah, uh, good luck. You can afford X X amount, but if it goes up, uh, you're ruined. And of course, many of them weren't told that. Uh, so Fannie and Freddie are, are backing, in the, in the 1980s, they backed 70% of mortgages in America. And by 2007, it's 45%. Uh, and so in this context, though, house values just go up because demand is through the roof. And, of course, supply is, is sort of constrained at relatively. Like, we stopped building houses in this country in the 70s. If you look at the chart, it's stunning. Um, so house prices in the 2000s go up 60% over inflation, which is the most since the war. Uh, and what this means, though, is that there's this new type of instrument that has this 
uh, highly rated, secure, is related to the American housing economy, which is related to the American consumer economy, which undergirds the entire thing. This is as uh, a sure thing as, as buying treasuries is. Uh, and that means there's a huge rush of foreign money into the, Amer- into the American uh, real estate market uh, because of the interdependence of these systems now. I mean, the money's got to go somewhere. If there's, there's profit to be had here, it will draw uh, money to, towards it. And there's all this money sitting, piling, that cannot be profitably invested elsewhere because the rate of profit is going down because the structural inputs have degraded The eternal footman is at your coat. He's snickering. But of course, the system can't acknowledge that. It just goes into overdrive. Sure, we have to keep eating our seed corn, dissolving all the social bonds that allow this thing to go. Whatever, because there is no alternative. Um. So finally, when the crisis comes, it's not because of any structural problem. It's not because of any crisis in the production process. It's simply that this is a highly speculative economy that is therefore highly volatile. But in such a context, when you have this, uh, this key component, this key uh, investments, this, this key um, this key input, let's call it that, in the form of like these, this continued flow of uh, of money into this mortgage system, uh, all of these mortgages, all this money goes flowing from people's bank accounts to, to all these institutions. That that capillary action upward from the people buying uh, and swapping and and, and uh, borrowing against homes and all this stuff, all these flows of money plus interest that are going through the system. Uh, if it's kinked, the whole thing collapses internationally. One of the big reasons that a lot of people thought that there could never be uh, a crisis that there was in 2008 is because there was a belief, people don't talk about it anymore, but there was a common understanding among economics that there could not be a national housing crisis, that there is no such thing as a national housing market because markets are determined by conditions in their local area, location, 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 economics in local areas, which shift you know, I mean, we talk about how the, the American Middle West was hollowed out by deindustrialization, but the Southwest was built, the Sun Belt. It was not just a destruction somewhere. It was building elsewhere. Of course, built in the least hospitable place where nobody else went before because it wasn't where you go. But of course, that's the only place left. So that's where we got to go. What's that? We need to fucking have ACs running 24 hours in every fucking home. And we need to have a fucking... Water pumped in from thousands of miles away. We got to create fake aqueducts to to steal water from other states. Sure, what could go wrong? It's the only place we can put the money, though, because it can't stay there because we build it around these structures that are no longer cost effective. We got to build new stuff, and they did. They built Phoenix. Wonderful, great idea. They destroyed Cleveland and Detroit. Mid-century marvels with some fantastic uh, architecture. And they built glass cubes in the desert. Fantastic. So all you got is a kink in the hose. People stop. People stop being able to afford their mortgages. They're all. Everybody is. Every one of these people is juggling every day. Something hits. 
it collapses the entire fucking house. So when this happens, I'm gonna not going to belabor this too much. This, they go through like a point-by-point point thing of how the Fed and the Treasury responded, but I hope we moan most of this stuff. It all boils down to Fed and the Treasury came in and just gave everybody money, bought everybody's bad debt. It's pretty simple. You got bad debt, we're buying it. Of course, the bad debted, the people who took bad mortgages, they got to get out of the houses. They still have to be. And this, of course, this is the original sin of the Obama administration. This is, this is where everything else flows from. The decision to uh, capitalize the the borrowers or the, the lenders and dispossess, literally dispossess the uh, borrowers. And it's just because we live in a capitalist system. Like, it could be no other way. And, uh, like, Obama could have done it technically, but no one who gets to where Barack Obama gets in that year would do it. The system had refined itself to such a way, had, had created a, a robust enough network of uh, white blood cells that it could, it could strain out and defeat any other impulse, any other instinct than the subconscious but total submission to capitalism. Now, he might have been forced to do it from the, from the bottom, but of course, that energy had been dissipated. Those structures had become uh, uh, decre- decrepit. So, yeah, like, yes, Obama could have done differently, but it's hard to call it a betrayal because he was always that. We just didn't know. Uh, he has a tragic view of history, which means that he has given up the idea that humans can control their own affairs. He is of the same mind metaphysically as, as all of the billionaire class that he hangs out with uh, and the unspoken voice of our popular culture in general that dissipates through our uh, machineries of, of cultural reinforcement. There can be no social life. So we have to uh, build technologies of distance. So... The fact, though, that this is, this is a, a political process that has to go through the political hoops and, and people have different like levels of understanding of what's going on, it means that the response is not instantaneous. The way it was in 2020 when the economy collapsed right at the beginning of COVID, that was an instantaneous infusion. And that's why we didn't get a Great Recession again in 2020, because it was instantaneous. The reason we got the Great Collapse of 2008 is that there was this... Uh, there was this uh, period when the response had to be gathered and they had to get votes together and, 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 and sign legislation and do all this, but there's no legislation in 2020. Oh, what? Some fucking thing that passed immediately without anybody even looking at it. And this is, this is a perfect example of how capitalism works. You have the great depression, which is a huge catastrophe. Go on, goes on, Horrifically long, leads to world wars, the death of hundreds of millions. Bad, glad, horrible. If you can prevent it, please do. 2008, we had another huge shock to the global system. And the intervention, it's not fast enough to stop it from 
stop there being a decline in the economy and a suffering, but it does prevent the prolonged, sustained downward trajectory that you had in the 30s. Uh, and then by 2020, they've streamlined it and undemocratized the process so much that it happens behind doors instantaneously, basically as a function of the nervous system. And you have no conflict, nothing and ever. And so at every point you can say as a capitalist, look at this. Look at the system adapting. It's beautiful. We're reducing the, we're reducing the violence of the system. We're reducing the inherent instability of capitalism. Okay, but what are you building as you're doing that? We went from 1929 till uh, 2018 to have the first one, to have the first one and then the second one. Then we went from 2008 to 2020. When the hell is the next one going to come then? And where do you go from maximum liquidity as the only response, which there is no alternative to? So while they're figuring this stuff out and like Lehman Brothers are going bust and they're not and they're, they're, they're figuring out what the package is going to be, and they're begging guys to lend money, and they're basically, the, the global banking system is dependent on the liquidity provided by uh, drug money, basically. It is, um, it is laundered black market money, mostly like cartel coke money, that is still in the system, is still within the system as liquid that can use, be used for transactions. And while this is happening, there's a 40% drop in the S&P. 3.3 million people lose their jobs. Households lose $14 trillion in net worth. There's an 8% drop in retail, 17% drop in capital investment. And GM loses $30 billion. And everybody else in the rest of the world is lashed to the mast of this fucking ship. Everybody else has a cascading crisis in their economies, their own uh, collapses, their own bailouts that have to happen. Uh, and in all of this, the, the, that ratchet effect that pulls everything closer, even though it's heightening the contradictions of crisis, pulls in more U.S. dollars. Even in this context, the U.S. dollar is stronger because there's no good investment out there. Everyone's terrified of lending money. So where do they put their money? American Treasury bonds. The last resort investment. Because it's the U.S. state. Without it, there's nothing. So even though I doubt everything else, I still believe in the country with the giant military, the world's largest military, with the most nuclear bombs, at least the best ones. We have the best missiles. Russia might have more, but there's a better. Everybody wants these treasuries. So even now America is what caused this thing, it gets reinforced. This is the dynamic of destruction that we're stuck in. Uh, and so globally, though, there is a coordinated response, and it's this global plan for recovery that the U.S. and the U.K. get together with. And they insist there's a $5 trillion stimulus package. Every country uh, sort of obligated to, to, to try to stimulate their in, in economies. So, and essentially to do global Keynesianism after the working class have left the stage of history, because Keynesianism assumes uh, a working class uh, political power. Now we're post that. We're post-Keynes in the sense that we're post-working-class uh, uh, political power. So in that context, prop, the, the, prop, the pump priming, you know, the kind of, uh, the kind of investment that the um, state did in the 30s is replaced. It's not hiring people to do jobs directly. It is cutting taxes, and it's giving free money to banks. It's pouring it in at the top because they're the only people who have political power anymore. 
They're the only people who can articulate a political agenda and have their political representatives uh, carry it out. So, of course, this, free, this money from the government to prime the pump, it goes in at the top only. But different countries, interestingly enough, do this in different ways. So China doesn't do that. China doesn't give a bunch of money to the top people. China puts out a bunch of money to smaller businesses in the form of uh, bank loans and then spends a zillion dollars on infrastructure. This is when they're building all those goddamn fucking uh, uh, maglev trains that we're all enraged to see every day on the Internet. In America, that money was mostly tax cuts. It was some direct uh, payment, mostly through uh, contracts, no like WPA style thing. <clears throat> which you know actually does encourage uh, working class uh, mobilization. Nope, just diffuse through the system and then a bunch of tax cuts. And then on top of that, uh, quantitative motherfucking easing. On top of it all, more money, liquidity, baby. This is basically the same thing that like Zimbabwe did. But the thing is, is that if you're another country, if you're not America and you try to increase, uh, you know, uh, uh, to uh, increase like standards of living in your country by or even, you know, maintaining them by printing more money, that you will be punished. You will get hyperinflation. You will get down. But America, the indispensable nation, cannot be disciplined from outside of global capitalism. It doesn't make sense. So the Fed creates this infinite liquidity, uh, which is what allowed for the instantaneous, uh, the instantaneous placing of the finger in the dike in 2020. There's not any backlash internationally because, you know, they, other countries can't, there is no point in punishing the United States because it cannot undermine the system that it is the cornerstone of, at least until now. We're now, post-Trumpet's in an interesting place, and so we'll talk about that. Um, and these countries now, because of this cheap dollar, they're stuck with cheap, with less valuable dollar uh, assets. Uh, and inflationary pressure in their own economies, but there's nothing they can do about it. But even with this, like you'd think, good deal for America? No, because there's still the U.S. government, there's still the Republican Party representing this lumpen, reactionary middle class with this delusional understanding of its relationship to the economy. These fucking cosseted little piglets who think that their little fucking mom and pop store is why the economy works, as though it's not a total, it's no, as though it's not totally extraneous at this point, as though they couldn't just like airdrop whatever bullshit you're making, like. Uh, there in a, in a pallet and just pay you to sit on your ass. They're letting you have your little job so you keep them, you don't bother them. But they don't know that. They think that they're actually what makes the economy go. And they have a political party that is exists to flatter them. And so it says, no, we're not, uh, not going to bail out blah, 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 find global systems. No, thank you. Uh, we're not going to pay this debt. And that creates this. And that shows the tension between the U.S. as this sovereign government with a political structure that's supposed to serve its own political formations, and then its goal is manager of global capitalism. And this conflict they end the chapter with, and the book with, is what's going to shape capitalism for the rest of the 21st century. Not as in World War II, uh, not was in the 30s and up to World War II, where there's a conflict 
between capitalist states over resources or whatever. It is now within states, within capitalist states. Of course, this was written before uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, which I think does show that uh, there is, I think, thing, uh, con- points of conflict and friction are, uh, exas- are blown up in a way that I don't think they could have possibly predicted. Because it's amazing to think of how relatively stable things felt in 2012 when this book was written to now. It's 10 years and it's been just a stunning trajectory. Um, but even with things like you know Russia, the, the fundamental uh, dynamic that they point out here at the end is 100% true. We're now in a situ- situation where uh, we've got a country in the United States where we have a national bourgeois which is able to express dominant, in fact, force-backed political authority in conflict with the global capitalism that it is absolutely dependent upon, that it has no power, no structure, uh, no uh, authority without. All of those deeds are only backed by the system that capitalism, global capitalism, that they're in opposition to, facilitates. And of course, it's all expressed along cultural conflicts because they have no real, uh, they cannot express a real uh, rejection of capitalism because they are a product of it and their power depends upon it. They will never renounce it because the, 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 the hierarchy it's based on is one that they metaphysically believe in. That's why they're willing to go to war with uh, global homo, bite the hand that feeds them. And this is happening everywhere. You're seeing the rise of these uh, domestic national bourgeois uh, and the funny thing is, is in the conclusion to their book, they say this chapter here, this paragraph here, after decades of uh, economic integration, there are no national bourgeois like those that supported the fascist turn in Germany or Italy in the interwar period. And what's wild is you might like chuckle at that, but that was I would 100 percent have agreed with that in 2020 and 2012. I would have said that is completely true. And now 10 years later, we're in a situation where. You have these real conflicts now emerging between uh, the the necessity of maintaining American, specifically American, but others too, American political institutions and their legitimacy. Uh, Like the legitimacy of these institutions that will allow every other institution to perpetuate itself are under attack from a political opposition that is... uh, unknowingly bashing at the foundations of their own power because they cannot see it. Because at the end of the day, there is no such thing as a clear-eyed class interest. Everyone has false consciousness because we have to have some notion of who we are as individuals and some value system associated with that. And yeah, there are pure psychopaths who who look at life through a pure screen of... of, 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 uh, bloodless uh, positives and negatives, uh, victories and defeats, uh, accumulations and dominations. Most people have to tell themselves some sort of story about who they are. And that's just as true at the upper ranks of capital, internationally and nationally, and locally. And the American ruling class has been telling itself a story of God, uh, godly dominion, of, of a holy hierarchy that is uh, fundamental 
to to the uh, self-expression of people who, in these late days, have the only real coordinated influence in American politics because they command the cultural allegiance of the most thuggish, violent, and asocial people in this country, which, of course, are the police. So they point to this and they say at the end of the book, this dilemma is going to be resolved in only one way, by the alliance of uh, class forces. That's, That's going to be it, because whatever class is able to assert its control politically will be able to respond to uh, the need the the in, in uh, the unavoidable need for a fundamental restructuring of something the restructuring has to occur what it will look like will deter- be determined by the array of class forces uh, and you know the, the working class is disorganized non does can't conceive of itself as a class and um cannot collaborate with the national bourgeois the way that it could in the 19th or uh, early 20th century. There's no more, there is no more uh, like left liberal professional class to ally with. Uh, and there are no more uh, populist small holders to ally with. Uh, they have all been lost to the liberal uh, m- mental breakdown of uh, partisan politics where the only goal is to see the opponent punished uh, is to see someone uh, blamed and and, uh, exquisitely and spectacularly injured and and seen to suffer for the generalized misery alright that was a long one but that was also the last one for this book. Uh, so that's the end of the book. I liked it a lot. It gave me a lot to think about. I hope sometime maybe later this fall to be able to talk to uh, one of the authors of this book, Sam Gindon, who apparently has heard of the stream and has offered to talk. I'd like to talk to him. But I think right now, like I'd have to do that with Chris, and Chris is on his honeymoon right now. So... Uh, It'll be later, but so I'll stay. Keep I'll keep uh, streaming. I think once a week or so, if I can, for the next couple of weeks, uh, and either we'll have an interview like that, or I might start another book soon. I'm thinking uh, first pass. I'm thinking first class passengers on a sinking ship by the rate Richard Lachman. Uh, but first, we'll just have some fun. Maybe do Q and A. Get silly. All right. Bye-bye.